Hi, I'm Lori Feathers, a bookstore owner and writer in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Sam Jordison, a publisher from Norwich in the UK. And this is Across the Pond. A podcast for readers of fiction eager to discover the most discussed and anticipated books on both sides of the Atlantic. All right, let's dive in. Hello, Sam, back from holiday. Hey, Laurie. How are you doing? I hope you had a wonderful holiday, Sam. I did. It was really nice. I went to Scotland and the Lake District and enjoyed some good old-fashioned British rain. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of walking and reading. I had a, a very nice time. Thank you. That's great. Well, that's so good. Well, then you are all energized to talk to me today about an article that I found in the past week or so from Esquire magazine. It was published on July 14th. It's by Will Blythe, and it's entitled The Life, Death, and Afterlife of Literary Fiction. And I read this. It's a long article, but wow, there's a lot in there to talk about, I think. Yeah, there is. I guess I'll start by saying I'd recommend this to our listeners. It's a really interesting, thought-provoking, and beautifully written article. And so I started off when you you sent it to me, and I was very cynical because, you know, rumours of the death of literary fiction have been much exaggerated, and people have been predicting it, at least since the time of T.S. Eliot. Or, well, they didn't have the genre of literary fiction. That label didn't maybe didn't exist then, but certain people were certainly lamenting the the loss of serious readers and yada 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 blah 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 i'm sure all our listeners are familiar with this kind of thing but i don't think the headline entirely does justice to the story because actually it turns out to be really interesting a really thoughtful meditation on what we value in literature and how it works um there are a few points raised about perhaps uniquely contemporary issues with with literature and the way it's received. And he talks about people, for instance, valuing the morality of characters and, you know, wanting to have these almost saint-like figures in the books that they can look up to or endorse their way of thinking rather than questioning morality. I'm not entirely sure that that's the only thing that happens in literature at the moment, but he, he makes a pretty strong case that there is a trend like that. And there are a few of the usual laments about attention spans and phone usage and I I started reading it and then I stopped and started looking at my phone and thought oh god (laughs) here we go (laughs) yeah well he kind of does a nice job I think in talking about the death of literary fiction and I will say that there is as the title of the article indicates in his view at least an afterlife and we'll mention that at the end so it's not all totally dispiriting but He talks about distraction, dataism, I guess, for lack of a better term on my part, and moral policing. And one of the things that I thought was interesting that I really never thought about, but I don't know why it seems so obvious that we hear all about the age of distraction and about how readers just can't keep their attention with a piece of literature anymore for a sustained period of time because of all of the distractions on the phone, et cetera. But he talked about how it affects writers as well. And that writers really have a a challenge with kind of just sticking 
to the writing. And he quotes the author, Will Self, who says, if there are writers out there who have the determination and concentration to write on a networked computer without being distracted by the worlds that lie a mere keystroke away, then they're far steelier and more focused than I. I don't know, Sam, have you heard from writers about this problem that they have sticking to the writing sometimes? No. I mean, I've seen people sometimes back when Twitter existed and before it became a complete binfire. I suppose I must have seen a few tweets about lack of concentration span, ironically enough, on Twitter. In fact, there were people complaining they were tweeting rather than writing. Um, but I guess as a publisher, you know, writers don't want to come to me with that kind of problem in a way. <laughs> Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. I mean, from where I sit, I can see that people are producing an awful lot of material still, and you know, hundreds of thousands of words are getting written, millions of words, billions of words, uh, without too much difficulty. So I don't know how much it's stopping people. Maybe it's changing what they write to some extent. It's pretty hard to quantify these things. So I'm, I'm humming and hawing that, and if. While, I, while I'm doing that and going backwards and forwards, I want to bring up that, that term you use, uh, dataism, which is something I'd never heard, which he mentions in, in the article as well. And so I'll just give a gloss on that for the benefit of listeners who hadn't heard of it like me. So this comes from the Israeli intellectual Yuval Noah Harahi. And he says that we accept something called machine wisdom when it comes to the recommendation of books, restaurants, and potential dates. He believes that this dataism is replacing humanism as a ruling ideology, invalidating the conviction that an individual's feelings, ideas and beliefs make for a legitimate source of truth. And according to Harari, dataism now commands, listen to the algorithms. That's the, the bit from the article. And ha, huh, which is, you know, a whole other topic, I guess, to the, the topic of literary fiction. But why don't I throw it to you? I mean, what do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, we've talked about it some on the show, you know, the Goodreads phenomenon, you know, the thumbs up, thumbs down, and people throwing a book under the bus without even ever having read it, it turns out. The Esquire article, Will Blythe mentions that literary criticism itself has become duly numerical. Writers and writing tend to be voted upon by readers who inflict economic power rather than deeply examining work the way passionate critics once did. Yeah, I, I don't know. This is probably part and parcel with the whole list sickles that we see, you know, so many, so many supposed literary publications now just put out lists of like, these are the best books about, you know, living on an island, or these are the best books about the Alaskan wilderness, or any kind of thing where they're just basically giving you five titles and like a two sentence plot summary without really, I don't know, I think there's something kind of very empty about those kind of reductive kind of articles. I wish there was, there was a little bit more true literary criticism out there. Yeah, me too. I mean, I guess the thing about that, though, is as much as it being a you know, some kind of consciousness shift or a different way of approaching literature. It's just the economic imperative, which he also talks about in this article in a very interesting way. It's just that people aren't paying people to write those lovely long pieces of criticism anymore. And it's very hard to know how to, let's use the ugly word, monetize them. You know, how do you possibly make a profit from 
giving that slow, thoughtful kind of criticism that maybe not that many people will read, but some people will really deeply appreciate and enjoy. And I know there there are people who want to write that stuff and there are people who want to read it, but they don't sell advertising, I guess. Yeah. And it takes longer, right? It takes a lot longer for a writer and thinker to write a really thoughtful piece rather than throw together a list of five to 10 titles. Publications just aren't paying writers by the hour. They're paying them by the article, basically. Yeah, true enough. When I win the lottery, I'm going to fund a a very long, very boring, literary monthly. (laughs) I look forward to that very boring literary monthly. I will (laughs) <laughs> they won't be boring <laughs> i used the wrong word i don't know why <laughs> maybe that was maybe i've just contradicted everything i said this terrible <laughs> thing came over me that I'm like, i don't even want to read it <laughs> i want to read it i want to write for it too i especially want you to pay me probably about ten thousand dollars per article which you'll be able to do after the lottery so no problem Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. You're on the payroll. Uncompromising is the word I was looking for. Okay, there you go. Uncompromising. Well, probably the most interesting, and we've talked about this too, part of the Will Blythe article in Esquire from my perspective is the moral policing. And this is such a problem. We talked about Roald Dahl and what they're doing to his books. I think that there's just too damn much attention to sensitivity in what we think should be written right now. I mean, all I can say is, yes, it's it's terrible. And I don't even know if this stuff works. The thing he highlights in this the article is that an edition of Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse is going to come out with a warning that, you know, hey, people in 1927 didn't think the same way as us. And so we have to lock them off in this kind of isolation box and we're not endorsing them. It's so simplistic and it's treating readers like fools, which is the thing that, that worries me as as well as their unpleasant ethical considerations about policing people's thoughts and telling them what's right and wrong right from the outset of a book. And yeah, it's unpleasant. Yeah, he talks about this moral rectitude that's kind of invaded our literature. And he argues good literature investigates morality. It stares unrelentingly at the behavior of its characters without requiring righteousness. The problem these days with a vast amount of fiction and its criticism is that morality is treated as if it were mathematically precise, obvious, undeniable, and eternal. Yeah, it's it's good writing. I like it. I guess you could argue against that and say, well, some fiction might be like that, but plenty isn't. And plenty is still questing and questioning and provocative and difficult and all the more enjoyable for it. So, Yeah, I said I was going to end this discussion with with an upside. It's been a little bit gloom and doom. And this is where Will Blythe talks about the afterlife of literary fiction, because he calls on all of us, all of us readers and writers who really care about the pursuit of literature to kind of continue to stick to our guns and our values, not fall into these traps of dataism and moral policing and distraction and to look at old-fashioned reading and writing as a form of permanent opposition, which I think is kind of cool and kind of empowering. Yeah. Yeah. Let's hope it encourages some writers to come up with some powerful material. I'm ready. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Laurie. (laughs) 
Hello, Across the Pond listeners. We're so happy today to have with us translator Frances Riddle, who will be speaking with us about her translation of Claudio Pinheiro's latest novel out in English, A Little Luck. Welcome, Frances. Hi, guys. I'm glad to be here. We're so happy to have you. So to get us started, why don't you tell us a little bit about the book? And I think you're going to read a, a brief passage for us as well. Right. So this book, A Little Luck by Claudia Pinedo, is about a woman who returns home after many years away. And we sense we don't know right away what it is, but there's some kind of trauma that she's led and she's maybe having to confront it as she returns. And this is just a short paragraph. It says, the barrier arm was down. She stopped behind two other cars. The alarm bell rang out for the afternoon silence. The red lights below the railway crossing sign blinked off and on. The lowered arm, the alarm bell, and the red lights all indicated that a train was coming. But there was no train. Two, five, eight minutes, and still no train in sight. In the back seat, the kids were singing a song they'd learned earlier that afternoon in school. The children had been singing for so long that she'd tuned them out, and their song did not disrupt the exterior silence of the afternoon. The first car drove around the barrier and crossed the track. The second car moved forward and took its place. She waited without moving into the empty space between her car and the one in front of her. She wondered whether that driver too was going to cross the tracks like the first one had. And as soon as she finished the thought, the car drove forward, maneuvered around the barrier arm and stopped. Although she couldn't see, she imagined that the driver was looking both ways to make certain no train was coming. Thank you for that. This scene that you've read is absolutely crucial to the novel and, in fact, gets repeated in various ways in the early stages of the book because, well, for all sorts of reasons, but partly because it's a traumatic event and it, the rhythm of trauma, I suppose you could call it, where you keep returning and returning to it. We do that as readers and we know that the woman driving the car, Mary Lohan, is a damaged woman. So early on, we know that something has gone terribly wrong in her life but it takes a while for that to be fully revealed and so it's kind of a challenge for us talking now i don't know how far you want to take it and what you can tell us about what has happened to her and how she reacts to it well yeah i, I like to avoid spoilers if possible because you know i think one of the great things that claudia does with her books is she builds this suspense she's kind of really known as a crime writer. She's legendary here in Latin America. But, you know, this is not a crime novel at all. She uses kind of the same, I don't know, techniques, right? So from the very beginning, we have a little bit of a mystery, have this question that we're asking, what is it that has traumatized this woman, Mary? What is it that she's scared to face when she returns home? Why hasn't she been back in so many years? So, so all of these questions, I think, are really essential. And for me as a reader, I'm a sucker for that. That that works like a charm. I want to know, and so I'm going to keep turning those pages. So I wouldn't I wouldn't tell the reader much more. It's just you know you've got to read to find out. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I mean, in my experience of of reading the book was this desperation to first of all to find out what had happened, and then when it became clear to find out exactly what had happened and how she had and hadn't dealt with it. Uh, I'm wondering, we can probably talk about the fact that she is seen in this place she returns to as a monster. 
And in fact, someone half recognizes her and says, oh, the person I thought you looked like is a terrible woman, essentially. And so one of the questions we have to deal with is how bad Mary is and what kind of weight of guilt she is carrying. I wonder if you could tell us something about that delicately. Yeah. So another theme, this was the second book I translated by Claudia, and I'm in the thick of a third one right now. So you kind of see themes repeated. And one of them is this idea of like the judgment passed on other people by society. So this woman, Mary, has been judged very harshly or was judged very harshly by the community that she left behind. And that, you know, is part of the reason that she left. And it's hard to say too much without giving things away. But it was actually hard for me not to judge her as well as I was reading the book. I mean, I think we can say that she left behind a child. And I have a child that's six years old, the same age. And he has, you know, like a sticky little chubby hand that I love to hold. And I can't really imagine anything in the world making me leave him by choice. And it was really hard for me at translating, not to just say, what? This is asking me to suspend reality too much. This is not a thing that a mother could ever do. But, you know, that kind of questioning what a mother should and shouldn't do is part of Claudia's point. Because a father can abandon a child. I have several friends who grew up without their father in their lives. And nobody thinks, how could that ever happen, you know? Whereas a mother is held to this much higher standard. So I don't know. She's Claudia's very often questioning themes around motherhood as well. And you know, that role that's forced on women. Yeah, that seems really significant to me. And it's not just motherhood, it's the fact that she's a woman in all kinds of ways that brings this judgment on her and makes things so hard for her. So what is it about her being a woman and the particular, is it particular to the society she comes from originally in Argentina? Or is it something something more? I think that Clay is definitely, in more than one of her works, kind of trying to shine a light on, yeah, the specific society of upper-class Argentina and the, the, the judgment and the hypocrisy and the really high standards that women are held to, for sure. There's a lot of nuance in the way that big themes and concepts are discussed. And I couldn't help but think about, as a translator, maybe that this was a little bit of a puzzle or a challenge. For instance, there's talk about fate and luck and what is happiness and guilt. And Mary Lowen, the protagonist, considers at one point that some mothers have all the luck while she has just a little luck. But that is enough to change her fate. When Robert changes his seat, this is a guy that she meets later on on an airplane, and she thinks that that was a lucky thing for her that she got to meet him in this kind of random way. And there's also a time when Mary differentiates between an accident and a tragedy. And she talks about that what happened to her and her family in Argentina before she left 20 years ago was not an accident, but a tragedy. And I wondered, was it complicated to translate those terms and those nuances into English and kind of how they read in Spanish as well? Yeah, I mean, translating, it's going through the process with an editor too. It's ridiculous how much you really think about every single word and can go back and forth and say this word or that word and look up synonyms and try different things out. And a lot of times it just will feel like something's not quite right. And you're, and you're kind of grasping for words. Um, and you're like, that's not the right word. And then when, when the right word that fits perfectly falls into place, like, ah, yeah, <laughs> the stars have aligned. 
clouds part, everything's perfect. So definitely there's a whole lot of overthinking, really overthinking each and every single word. And, you know, sometimes we don't get it right. <laughs> also, you'll read a translation, you're like, oh, why did they use that word? It brings to mind this one thing for me every time I read it and I don't like it. But everybody has their own, you know, idiolectic vocabulary and it worked for that translator or maybe it didn't and they just couldn't find the perfect solution. You know, sometimes there's not a perfect solution to things, solution to things. Um, and you just have to leave something that's just, you know, uh, as good as it's going to get. A little luck is interesting because in Spanish, it's una suerte pequeña, which, I mean, a little luck is like, you know, you could say with a little luck, I can do this today, right? It's kind of a, an expression in English. And I like the way it sounded. And so that's kind of why we used it. But in Spanish, it's like, a small amount of luck. It's like, I don't know, it's kind of like, it's more emphasis on the smallness of it, right? So I don't know, I feel like that was a little bit lost as well, too. But I think it sounds catchy as a title. <laughs> well, I thought the nuances all worked well. And yeah, luck comes up so often in the book and about having all the luck, having only a little luck. There's a lucky charm necklace that she wears at the end. So I couldn't help but think of all, every time I saw that word, whether it was the same word each time in the original Spanish and you had to kind of work with that or whether there were kind of some differences and different decisions that you had to make in word choices. Yeah, actually, I'm not sure if sometimes it could have been another word in Spanish. But one of the things when I first got the book, I kind of already had the title as a little luck and I liked that. And then as I got into the book, I was like, I don't know if this is going to work. Is luck going to work in every place? You know, and I kind of had to finagle things and wiggle things around a little bit to make luck fit everywhere I wanted it to be so that it would work as the title as well. Because you want the title to sum it up, you know? Yeah. And I think it also leaves this open-ended question for Mary. Did she even have a little luck? Does she have or did she have any luck at all throughout her life? Yeah, I know. I thought that sometimes too. Like she seemed, you know, she's not a very peppy, bubbly person, right? But she was kind of optimistic that she could see these things as luck, you know, because you would think she's a person whose life has been so marked by tragedy. But I guess what she's saying is that without these little lucky breaks, kind of the kindness of stranger, you know, luckily sitting next to this very kind man on the plane, her life was kind of saved. I think it would have been maybe much worse is what she thought if it hadn't been for these little lucky breaks. Yeah, that's one of the really interesting things about the book is it, it makes you constantly think of the alternative paths that Mary could have been taken down and could have gone on. And ultimately, I, I guess we're, we're left asking, is she lucky? Is her life, well, we don't want to go into the resolution too much, but would her original life where she had this family and apparently stable setup, would that have been good for her, in fact, do you think? Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way, honestly, because I was like, no, there's so many other options. You don't have to flee the country. But yeah, it's all a matter of comparison, you know? It, it, things could have been much worse for her, you know? I think we've all kind of known people in our lives or we've seen them take these paths. They're just like, no, that's not the way to go. Um, so she could have taken much darker paths, I'm sure. And quite a lot of the time, it's like she's having veils lifted and she's seeing the reality of things and the truth of things. Like, for instance, she learns that in her community in, in Argentina, she doesn't have any friends, essentially. Right. Yeah. I think she kind of was just kind of going along with what her husband wanted and maybe not even thinking about what she really wanted and what was good for her. That was another another thing. This character caused conflict in me. 
she moved out from the city where she lived. Actually, I live in the same neighborhood that she was from, Cabachito, which is like the geographic center of the city. You can get everywhere. And she moved way out to the suburbs, probably an hour and a half or two hours by public transportation. Uh, it's a different world. I mean, you're never going to see your friends again if you do that. And she, she actually had to, well, she didn't have to, but she did quit her debris because it was too much of a commute. And I was like, no, don't do that. Stay in town, finish college, you know? So yeah, I feel like she wasn't maybe being true to herself, honestly, for a lot of the book as well. You mentioned that you're in the process of translating a third book by Claudia Pinheiro. And I'm always really fascinated and intrigued because I think that translators are probably like our primary curators of translated literature in terms of what we get to read in English. And I wondered how you came upon her work and maybe, yeah, the the path that you took to kind of find her and work with her. Right. So yeah, in this case, Charcoal Press is really curating a lot of what we're seeing from Latin American fiction. Carolina Orloff, who is, she's Argentine, she lives in Scotland. They're putting out, I don't know, four, five, six books a year, all from Latin American Spanish. And she's, if there's anybody good writing in in Argentina or in Latin America, she knows about it. She snaps up those rights. She publishes those books. And I was thrilled that she started working with Claudia and asked me to join the team to collaborate. Honestly, I moved here. So 13 years ago, I moved to Argentina and I wasn't a literary translator yet, but I'd always been a really big reader and I liked translation. So it was kind of this idea. It seems like such a pipe dream, like impossible, right? To be a literary translator. But I was asking around, what should I read of the local literature? And my mother-in-law, my then boyfriend's mother, let me, Elena knows, Elena sabe. This was 13 years ago and I still have the copies. Don't lend me books. I'm really bad about returning them, but... Claudia was the very first Argentine author that I read when I moved here. And so to 10 years later, be asked to translate her. And she's this huge name in in Latin American literature to be able to translate her period and to have it come full circle and it be the first book I read here. It was kind of a dream, you know, for me as a translator and to get more books by her and hopefully more and more. It's a real treat for me. I love it. And then Eleanor knows your translation was shortlisted for the International Booker Prize uh, just last year. Is that right? Yeah, I got to go to London for 10 days. I mean, this was, this book really brought me a whole lot of luck. And hopefully this one will too. I feel like it has an auspicious title. <laughs> You're getting a whole lot of luck, more than just Mary's a little luck, I guess. That's really great. How many novels has Claudia published in Argentina? A lot. Approximately. Mm, around 10, maybe. I don't know. And you said that she's primarily, or had been, maybe still is known as a crime writer. Does she write crime series from time to time? or are they one-off crime novels? That's an interesting question because I would say they're one-off and I don't even know if they're crime novels, but she kind of became famous for a book that was a crime novel. It was kind of based on a real murder in a country. They call them country clubs, but it's a gated community. And so that kind of like set her brand, I guess, right? And all of the books that I've read or worked with have a death in them. They all have a bit of a mystery in them. This book has the mystery of, you know, what is Mary fleeing? What's her trauma? And there's always a surprise. Like you're going along reading the book and you have these, you're guessing, what is it? You know, what is it that she's left behind? And and you're pretty close, but she always has it, you know, there's always a little bit of surprise. She's just really good at a twist, you know? So all of these books have those elements. And I mean, I don't know if she sits down intentionally to say, I'm going to use crime fiction elements in this book that's not crime fiction, or if it just is the way it comes out. 
But um, I think it's really interesting. It really works. I really felt the twist in this one because, and this might sound like too opaque to our listeners, but at the beginning of the book, she's when she goes back to Argentina for work, she's worried about running into him or, and she keeps referring to he and the identity of him and he really took me off, off guard. I was, I was not anticipating that at all. So yeah, I felt it. I guessed it. I guessed it. But I mean, there were other surprises, you know? And so every reader is going to have, you know, different guesses, but sorry, I wanted to say, does she do a crime series? No, but one of her earlier books, Tusha, Yours, it was published in, in English as yours, not by me. Many years ago, it was published. It had the character who went to jail for murder, for murdering her husband's lover. And then the sequel is the one I'm working on right now. Um, it's the same woman after she's out of prison and restarting her life. It's a big one. That will maybe be out next year with Charcoal Press. So she's kind of maybe toying with the idea of some series, but it's not like a Hercule Poirot kind of situation. You know, it's not a, a detective that you that solves a bunch of mysteries. I'm looking forward to the one you're working on that you sh- you uh, held it up for the camera and it is a chunky one. Yeah, it is. It's a big one. I don't know what the title is going to be in English yet, but in Spanish it's called El Tiempo de las Moscas, which the literal translation would be The Time of the Flies, which is not work. If you guys have any title ideas, we don't know what Maybe our listeners will come up with maybe, some. Maybe, maybe. Comment, send me a message. It struck me you were talking about Mary Lohan, the protagonist, kind of upper middle class kind of existence in this suburb. It felt really universal to me the way that she was shunned by the other mothers, kind of like the snobbery, the competition regarding the kids. You know, my kid's in the play, my kid won the art contest, that kind of thing. But I'm wondering from your perspective, having lived in Argentina now for 13 years, were there some elements of the book that you think are particularly Argentinian that don't feel as universal? Oh, I don't know that one. Me living here, all I can speak to is my context. And I don't feel that I'm in that kind of judgy, competitive society. But maybe there is a little bit of that in, you know, just natural in parenting, comparing kids to other people. Oh, can you believe that kid did that, you know? And you think your kid's always better. I think that maybe is universal. But yeah, I I think that Claudia is often commenting on kind of Catholic society as well. And a little bit of the hypocrisy and thing. This book, a little less, I don't think touched on religion at all. It is a common thing. Elena knows had, you know, the action took place in the church and there was a priest. And that's another book I'll be translating next year by Claudia called Cathedrals. You know, this is a kind of a thing that, you know, Claudia has grown up here in this society and is commenting on it, critiquing it for sure. I want to ask about fiction in the book and the way Robert and Mary, when they're embarking on what becomes their relationship, they communicate with each other through books, essentially, that that Robert gives to her. And he very cleverly uses this as a way to, to help her open up in some ways, but also to show her things and one of the culminations of this is something really interesting he says to her about Alice Munro. And he says that Alice Munro lies truthfully. And I'm wondering if you can tell us something about how you felt about that and reacted to that. And then how it felt to be a translator who I guess is essentially putting the most accurate version you can of someone else's lies. I've never thought about it that way. I love that. I loved that line too, because I feel like that's when fiction brings 
true. You know what I mean? It doesn't feel like a lie. I thought that was a good way to describe it. That's when, when you can really connect with something. And I think Claudia is good at that. She builds these characters that feel very real. Although, like, I was judging Mary a lot, <laughs> I understood her and I could sympathize with her. And I feel like that has to do with a lot of the details she put in there about how she was afraid of bats as a child. And because she was terrified that a bat would get stuck in her hair and her mother would rush over. And it was one of the few times her mother touched her and paid attention to her, that kind of thing. And the plumbing smelled in her bathroom, so she didn't want friends over. Like, all of these small details really build a very real character. I feel like these things might have been taken from real people and real situations in Claudia's life. So it's, it's a lie, but it's also truth, maybe, and that helps you connect with the character. And then as far as the literature, I really like that because I went through a similar experience moving here to Argentina. And I told you, Claudia Pineda was the first author that I read. You get somewhere and you, you kind of want to understand the literature as a way to understand the culture. It helps with your language. You're studying the language. You're practicing the language. It helps with that as well. And so I had a similar kind of immigrant experience and really trying to discover the local literature. She's also using it to process trauma. And I think that it, it ends up really helping her, you know? There's an interesting passage at the book's conclusion, and I don't think this gives anything away, but it's this notion that words dilute the intensity of happiness. That seemed to me to be like a very ironic thing for a novelist <laughs> to write. And I wondered if you wanted to speak on that a little bit. And again, not giving anything away, but it just seemed to be like this comment on how to be happy, what it means to be happy, but maybe that true happiness is something that's inexpressible. Yeah, that's what I took away from it. There's something that words are not enough to explain, to express, and that, you know, maybe don't even bother. Don't even try. Just feel it. Just kind of live in the moment and let yourself enjoy this happiness and not overthink it and try to explain it is what I took away from that. Yeah. The book is, you know, we're, we're dealing with this quote unquote damaged woman, Mary, who goes through so much. And I kind of wanted to feel a redemption for her at the end. I wanted her to reach some kind of happiness. And I liked the fact that the novel doesn't put a big bow on the end of everything. And it's not a, and they lived happily ever after kind of thing. But I did feel that this very troubled character kind of reaches a point, if not happiness, then maybe a little bit of acceptance about who she is, because there's also a lot of stuff about, I think, identity going on in this book. She calls herself and she refers to herself as a lot of different names. She changes her looks. She wears colored contacts to make her eyes brown, even though she apparently has these stunningly gorgeous blue eyes, which had to have been a really hard thing to cover up. I've always wanted those stunning blue eyes, but she's such a conflicted character. I just really admire how both you and Claudia kind of bring out all of these kind of complex, I think really relatable things that she experiences, even though, thank goodness, most of us will never have to experience the major tragedy in her life. Yeah, hope not. So this reminds me actually of something Sam said at the beginning, which is when she goes back home, she doesn't want to be recognized because she was seen as a monster in this community. And she also, she changed her eye color well before she went home. She just wanted to not be that person anymore, I think. Because why would you change your eye color if you're living in Boston, thousands of miles away? You're not hiding from anyone there. But when she is recognized in the pharmacy and the person says, oh no, I thought you were someone, but 
no, that, that was a terrible woman. You're not her. She goes outside and she cries. I think that she says that part of the reason she's feeling emotional is that she wasn't recognized. And she says, is nothing of the old me still there? You're right that she is really conflicted. And identity is a big part of this book. Who are we? Can you become another person? Or is there always going to be some essence of you left? And do you want it to be completely eradicated? Even if you think that you do, do you really deep down, you know, because she's sad when she's not recognized in the end, even though she doesn't want to be recognized. And then back to the happiness. I was lucky enough to translate an interview with Claudia about this book. And one of the things she talked about was that Mary's traumatized. She's gone through trauma. She is melancholy by nature and that she wasn't going to be jumping up and down for joy, kind of bubbly person ever. So she said she gave her the small amount of happiness that she thought would be possible for her, that she had to kind of plunge his character into darkness and she felt guilty about it, but that she knew she was going to be able to help her get back to some place of like, I guess you're saying acceptance of the past and closing the book on it and being able to move forward with a little bit more joy in her life and just kind of peace, making peace with what had happened, I guess. Yeah. Well, Francis Riddle, it's been so fun talking to you about this book. And I can't tell you how excited I am that, wow, it looks like you've got maybe years of Claudio Pinheiro translations uh, <laughs> coming our way through the mighty and wonderful Charco Press. So that makes me very happy too. Yeah, let's hope so. Uh, me too. I love doing it. I love doing interviews. So thanks so much. And yeah, we'll keep them coming, hopefully. Good. Fantastic. I want to encourage all of our listeners out there to go out and purchase a copy of A Little Luck by Claudia Pinheiro, translated by our guest today, Francis Riddle. And thank you so much. Good luck. Thank you, guys.